0: How many of you have ever driven past uh, on a highway and you see these billboards um, describing, you know, Jesus is coming soon? How many of you have ever seen that? They're not usually, Jesus loves you, he forgives you, he wants you to be a part of his family. No matter what you've done in the past, God loves you. And he's coming soon to make everything even better. Do they say those things usually? No, there's one that I pass by all the time that says, stop messing with God and get to church. <laughs> I don't want to go to that church. I mean, judgmental. There's one that says, uh, oh, it's on the picture. There's one, and I don't know if this one's real or if it's internet generated, but there's a picture of a really buff Jesus on the cross. And I'm talking about buff, like guns, all right, Like bodybuilder. And on the one side it says, with me or against me, and on the other side it says, if you're not, it says, if you're against me, then there is hell to pay. Like, well, geez, it's a horrible relationship to be in. You had to be, like, perfect all the time. So what we see is there's all of these different billboards, and all of them are talking about Jesus is coming soon, Jesus is coming soon, but very rarely... Is there a picture of Jesus is coming to make everything better? Everything we see, it seems, is that when we talk about Jesus coming to earth again, it's just fire brimstone. And, and what ends up happening is it makes a lot of people afraid. So this morning, we are, we're going to be trying to tackle the question that was submitted by, by one of you here, or by several of you, is, Okay, Jesus is coming, but how, how do I know that I will be ready for Jesus to come? And I think that the question that was really being asked is, I know Jesus is coming, but how can I be assured that I am saved, that I am in, that, that Jesus has forgiven and accepted me, and that He will take me into eternity or into heaven with him? And I think that's the question, and so I want to try to answer that this morning. Just a few days ago I was I was driving down the street, there was a bumper sticker on a car, and the bumper sticker says, Jesus is coming, are you ready? Call 888, and then I didn't write the number down because I wasn't going to (laughs) call. But I wonder if that's all it takes. Does it just take a phone call for us to know the formula as to what it means to be ready, to be assured that we have been saved? Is there a 12-step program, a 10-step program? Is there a three-step process for us to know whether you are ready for Jesus' return? Now, this morning, we're not talking about when Jesus is coming. We, we talked about last week that Jesus says soon, and all we decided is that soon means something different to God than it does to us because we've been waiting for a long time, and that's okay. I'm not, not going to question God here this morning. So we're not talking about the when, but the fact that we know that Jesus, we believe, it to, we believe that Jesus is coming at some point to renew all things. But is there just a, like a 10-step program? Is there a simple formula that we can take in order for us to know um, whether we are saved? And I would say that, that if there were, then there would be a, a problem with it. But if there was just three things that we had to do, it, it's almost like we're asking, what is the least amount I have to do? in order to know whether I'll be saved. Let me give you another example. I call this an economical transaction. Um, It's not a theological term. It's a David term. But here's here's what I mean. When you go to the store and you have to buy something, now I'm not talking about a pair of shoes or a dress or a shirt or a tie or, I don't know, a jersey of your favorite team, because usually if you're going to the store to buy those things, you're going to buy what you want, regardless of how much it costs, right? For the most part? For the most part? If it's something you're going to the store to buy, that's what you're going to get. But on everything else, everyday kind of stuff, when you're having to go to the store and you're having to choose between light bulbs, we're generally going to go for the light bulb that costs the least amount of money, right? If you go to Target, Walmart, wherever you go and do your shopping, we're generally going to pick the item that costs the least amount of money because the least amount of money that goes out of our checking account goes where? stays in we hope or we spend it somewhere else but but the point is is that usually in our lives we are always looking to save a penny we're always looking to save money and so we are trying to pay the least amount in order to get the maximum amount of product and i think that as people in the united states as a we're a consumer culture right if you no matter where you drive our, our entire economy is based on what consuming on buying Right? We just buy and buy and buy. That's how our economy works. Looking for, the best deal. Looking for the best deal. And I think oftentimes we do this with God. It's almost like in our subconscious, because I, you know none of us are going to uh, admit to doing this, but it's almost as though in our subconscious what we're actually saying is, God, what is the least amount I have to do in order to be saved? What is the least amount I have to do in order to get saved? Now, there's a problem with that question because some of you are already saying, like, no, we don't do anything for salvation. Jesus does it all. But to that extent, (laughs) there's a little something we do, and that's accepting that what Jesus says is true. So, for those of you who want a black and white, concrete, definite answer, old school preaching, I would say that the answer to how do I know I'm ready, is found in Acts chapter 16, verse 31. And there's a man asking the disciples, so Acts 16, verse 31, and he says, Sirs, S-I-R-S, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So this is a jailer. He was a, uh, the prison guard who was supposed to be guarding these Christian men who were spreading the gospel. And um, they had been unshackled, the gates had been opened, but the Christians, they didn't escape like most of us would if we were in jail, but rather they stayed there because they, did, they didn't want to put the jailer in a bad position. And so this guy was like, all right, you guys, you guys are amazing men. Their conduct basically convinced this, this jail guard that he wants to know about this God. And so he says, what must I do to be saved? And what was their answer? Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And it even goes on to say you and your household. Salvation is easy. It wasn't easy for Jesus. It wasn't easy for God. But the process of salvation, of getting in, is very easy. It's a gift that God offers us and all we do is accept it. But is, is that enough to live a fulfilling life? So I would say this way. Before I get into this point, I, I just want to make clear to some of you kind of what I'm doing here. Whenever, whenever I preach, whenever there is a sermon that needs to be preached, I hope that it does three things. One, that it presents Jesus as the center of everything that we are, everything we believe, in, everything that we do. Because if Jesus is at the center of everything, then that means that grace is everywhere. So number one. Number two, a sermon should, um, should call us to action. So I hope that in every sermon that I preach that, that it is calling you to some sort of action and make some sort of decision um, as, to, as to what you're hearing. And then the third part is the part where I think most of us too now, including myself at times, is a sermon should also give us language in order to understand the world that we live in. So what I mean by that is that there are some things that are fundamental to how we understand the world um, but most people aren't really thinking about that. Most people are just thinking, like, on the surface, like, I- I'm hungry, I need to go eat, or I need to go to work, or I need to watch my favorite show, whatever show that may be. But what I'm trying to do through the sermons is to lay a foundation of how do we begin to talk about life if we are believers in Jesus? Does that make sense? Sometimes that's the part of the sermon that gets a little boring. Did I just say that out loud? I know sermons can be boring sometimes because we're used to looking at a screen all the time. You know what I mean? So, so sometimes the part that gives us the language to really understand, if you, if you tend to feel yourself kind of like, where is he going with this? Listen, because this is the parts that actually can shape and change the way you understand the world. Does that make sense? It's, it's the kind of things that my kids tune out on. And, and then, but then they repeat it to me when they see it on Twitter, when someone else says it. So, kids. <laughs> So there's a writer that says that there, and here's where we're going with this, right? Here's the language that helps you to understand what it means to be a Christian. How do you know if you are ready for Jesus's return? There is one writer by the name of Dallas Willard who passed away about a month and a half ago. This is one of these guys that got my generation and the generation before me really into trying to understand what Jesus wants from us in this world. Like what is Jesus, how does Jesus want us to live? And so what this writer says, philosopher, Christian theologian, he says that there are two kinds of gospels that the Christian church preaches. He says there's the first gospel that's called the gospel of atonement, which basically means that your sins are forgiven. This is what most churches do. When when churches have an altar call, when they say, you know, this morning, I want to know how many of you want to give your life to Jesus. Um, And he says, and so what that does is it's trying to get people into your church, but then that's it. And if we have the time, then we make them into, into disciples. If we have time, then we'll teach them what it looks like to live in the world today. He says, and that gospel is fine. There's salvation for everybody who believes that their sins are forgiven. He says, that's, that's gospel. He says, but then there's a second gospel, which is called the gospel of the kingdom of God. And he says, with this gospel, your sins are forgiven. You are atoned. Jesus has forgiven the very worst of your offenses, no matter how bad or what you've done, no matter what you've done. Jesus forgives you. That's the death on the cross is costly. So he doesn't just forgive some sins like the easy little sins. He forgives even the worst of our sins. But the gospel of the kingdom is one where once you've understood that you have been forgiven, then you allow that thankfulness, you, you allow that to then filter into the way you actually live your life. If you have ever been forgiven, and I've said this before, if you have ever been forgiven for something that you should have not be forgiven for, it changes the way you see the person that has forgiven you, right? There's this deeper love and gratitude for the person that forgives you. And it's the same way with our relationship with God. You have been forgiven. God has, in essence, given you an insurance plan that says that you are saved and you will spend eternity in the presence of God, but that that eternity is present in so many ways here and now. Now, here's where it matters. Some of you are saying, but you don't know the life that I'm living right now, and you have no idea what I'm going through. You have no idea what I've done and how those consequences are affecting me today. You have no idea the diseases that I'm faced with or that my mom or that my dad are faced with. You have no idea how bad my relationship is. You have no idea how bad my finances are. There, There is all of these excuses in our heads that try to tell us that there are so many things going wrong that although I want to believe in God, he's not doing enough for me. Is that a fair assessment of how sometimes we think the truth is, is that God has already done everything for you. God has forgiven you. He has, clean, he has cleared your slate. I call that a good day, a good life. And although it may not feel like God is helping you at the very moment that you, that you need, maybe it's because we need to begin to shift the paradigm of how we see or what we expect out of God. God. God is, the Bible tells us that his blessings are new every single day. The question is, are your eyes open to see it? To believe in the gospel of the kingdom of God is knowing that your life is no longer about yourself or about what you get out of every relationship you're in or what you get out of your job or what you get out of church. To be a citizen of the kingdom is that you take back seat to God. God. And what that means is this, God, may your will be done and may you allow me to be a part of it. It's not even saying, God, what is your will or what is your purpose for my life? God's will and purpose is that grace abounds everywhere. And he is inviting you to be a part of what he is doing in this world today. That is a miracle that God would take you and ask you and me to be a part of what he's doing in this world. He wants us to begin to experience the life that he has for us. I notice I'm running out of time. Are we still awake? There's food today. You know what that means. You guys don't know what that means. We're going past 12, so feel free to get up if you have to. You're not going to hurt my feelings. You might a little, but I won't say that. Life in the kingdom God is inviting you into living into a type of wonderful life now where even the worst of your sins don't have to keep you back from the life that God is calling you to live. So the question to answer, the question to ask rather is, but how do I know if I'm ready for the kingdom? Well, A is, are you you experiencing the kingdom life now? Are you trying to see the world through the eyes that God sees the world where it's no longer just about what you want but about how you can be of service and how well you can love other people and show God's grace and God's love? That's why we don't put out those billboards here in Orange because we don't want to be a church of judgment. We're a church where we believe that God has forgiven every one of us and so we want to be the kind of church that doesn't judge someone for the things that they've done. As heinous, as horrible as they might be, we don't judge because God has not judged us. The Bible would even go as far as to say that, or Jesus says that the measure by which you judge someone else, God is going to judge you. That's why I don't like to judge anyone. Grace. <laughs> Remember Jesus, I never judge. <laughs> That's life in the kingdom. So here, let's let's go forward. Matthew chapter 24. I'm going to get the red Bible. Can I get... Is there a red just so we're in the same translation, Matthew chapter 24, that's page 700, page 700, all right, we're going to go kind of quick, Matthew 24, verse 42, therefore keep watch, this is Jesus speaking, okay, to his disciples, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have left his house to be broken into. Duh. Yes, Jesus. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect. There's so much more. that's So so this is scary language that Jesus, Jesus chooses to use. You do not know when I am coming back. It'll be like a thief in the night. You're like, wow, Jesus, uh, so much for the no fire and brimstone, right? Like, we don't want to be afraid of the end, and yet Jesus uses imagery of a thief. That's scary. But we can't get caught up too much on, on the analogy that he's using. All he's really trying to say is, I'm going to come and you don't know when. Right? so he's using colorful language. It's not going to be scary, you know, like this image of a thief. So verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them food at the proper time. It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I will tell you the truth that he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. What we find is he asks the question in verse 45, who is the faithful and the wise servant? In other words, he's saying who is doing what they are supposed to be doing? Who is doing what God has asked them to do? So the antidote to being ready for when Jesus returns, right, because it's unexpected, is as long as you are doing the work that God is calling you to do, you're ready. You're ready. That means not just being sinless, It doesn't mean just being perfect. It doesn't mean that you just, you follow all of the Ten Commandments and all sorts of other laws and all sorts of Adventist beliefs. It doesn't mean that. Because the servant here was in charge of other people. So the work of God isn't just for you to be without sin, but it's that you must be continually and always serving other people. So there's a quick analogy, and then we're going to jump back into the text. Um, last, last weekend, I saw a news article <clears throat> on the internet, and there was a man by the name of, Matt, of Patrick McConnellog. Patrick McConnellog, I don't know, kind of weird name, 23-year-old computer programmer. Some of you may have heard of this. He works in New York for a small startup company, and he's right, he writes codes. I guess that's the thing that makes computer programs work? <laughs> code. Okay, code. I press on, and it works. Okay. So he does the stuff that we don't know how to do so that we can have the, the programs that we like to have, right? So you can watch your Netflix or Hulu or whatever else it is, right? They, they make that happen. 23-year-old kid, okay? I say kid because I'm older than him. So he walks by this homeless guy every single day, and every day he's like, I feel like I should do something for him. There's, I, I feel like I, I should reach out. This homeless guy always has a book, or he's writing, or he's doing something, right? Right? So he came up to him one day and he says, okay, I have, I have something to give you and it's two choices. I can either give you $100 and he, Patrick says, I figured that I could get him somewhere if he wants to go to where he has family or friends. I could get him a hotel, night stay somewhere. I get him food, whatever it is. Give him $100, which is very generous. You know, for I'll take 100 bucks if anybody wants to give me 100 bucks and I have a job. So that's generous. The other one is that he would buy him a laptop, I believe it was two, okay, here it is, a laptop, three JavaScript books, I don't know what that is, and two months of coding instruction, like computer coding. JavaScript, I guess, is what you need to learn in order to do that, yeah. So he says, 100 bucks today, or I will give you two months of teaching you how to write code to a homeless guy that doesn't have a computer, but he would soon have a computer. That is life in the kingdom. I don't know if this Patrick guy is a Christian. I have no idea. The article didn't say But he was actually pouring himself into those the people had cast aside, regardless of why he's there. Remember, we don't get to make judgment about the decisions that the homeless guy has made. That's not up to us. It's not up to you. Jesus says, give to those who ask. Jesus says that, not me. Life in the kingdom is when you are pouring yourself out on behalf of those that can give you absolutely nothing in return. All God is asking is that you empty your cup of grace, of love, of sacrifice, of whatever it is that you have at your disposal, and you empty it into the life of someone else, especially those that cannot pay you back. That is, after all, what Jesus did for us. There is nothing you can ever do to pay Jesus back for giving you the chance at living eternal life with him. So when Jesus says that he will come like a thief in the night, what he's basically saying is, you'll be ready if you are about my father's business. And if you still don't believe me, there's a quote, there's one more passage, and then I'll sit down. Sounds good? A pastor of a big church, Bill Hybels, he once, he once, he once wrote in a book that the local church is the hope of the world. The local church is a hope of the world. When I read that, that's when I knew that that it was exactly where I needed to be. If if there was somewhere else that I felt could make more change in our city, then I would do that. Obviously, politics and all that, but I don't have thick enough skin. Like, I would go home and cry if people criticized me that much. So politics is out. I'm not strong enough. (laughs) And there's all kinds of other stuff that goes along with it, right? But if, if there was anywhere else or if there was anything else I could do that I believe would make a change in our cities that would bring Jesus' grace to them, I would do that. But I believe that the church is the, is the local hope of our society. And so with, with that in mind, we are to be a church that is, that is being the faithful servant. Now, some of you are sitting here and you're like, Pastor, you are so dumb. You haven't even answered the question of what does it mean to be ready? That's not the answer I was looking for. The answer that some of you were looking for is that you have to get rid of some of these bigger sins in your life. And you have to come to church every week. And you have to give tithes and offerings. And you have to, you know, not, you know, you have to abstain from certain foods and certain drinks and certain substances. And that in order to be ready is basically you have to be as perfect as you can. Yeah, it works. Not only is that, yeah, not only is that false, it's impossible to do. Some of you don't like that answer. Some of you don't like that answer because you're like, well, then why should I try to be good? No, you shouldn't try to be good. You shouldn't try to be good. You should instead do everything in your power to bring glory and honor to God. Because when you make your life about bringing glory and honor to God, you begin to live not only a more vibrant and fulfilling life, but all of that stuff that you're like, everyone's like, hey, I'll get rid of all that. That, I believe, with all my heart, will begin to naturally go away because you will be living for something that is bigger than yourself. How do you know you're ready? Bring glory and honor to God always, everywhere, all the time. And if you're still not convinced, we're going to look at one final passage. So just turn the page over to Matthew 25. By the way, it would be easier if there was just a list of 10 things we had to do in order to be saved. That's easy. People that hide behind the Ten Commandments or these laws or those laws or that, that's, that's easy. Anybody can do it if they try really hard. What's truly difficult is to change your heart in order to see the world the way Jesus sees in a way that is loving and generous and compassionate. That's hard. But that's what Jesus is calling you to do. And if you don't believe me, we'll look at what Jesus says right here. Matthew 25, verse 31. Here we go. When the Son of Man, that means Jesus, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will gather before him. So this is a judgment scene, okay? This is where Jesus gets to, in in essence, say who's in and who's out. But it's, a, it's about more than that. It's, we can't take this too literally, okay? And you'll see in a moment why we can't take it too literally because it, Jesus is using this as a platform to make a deeper truth. Verse 34, oh, 33. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Neither of us are sheep or goats, all right? So metaphor. Then the king will say to those on his right, come to you, come, you who are blessed by my father, Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Another translation would say I was a, a resident alien. So an immigrant. Just saying. Just telling you what Jesus says, not me. I needed clothes. And that's not a political statement. If Some of you are like already tuning out. That's not. Don't. It's not about politics. This whole world is God's. Okay. I was hungry, gave me something. I was thirsty. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Verse thirty-six. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous, so the people that Jesus says are in, will answer him, Lord. When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothed you. And when did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for the for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Here's what's interesting about this. These people are like, We never saw you. We didn't. When did we do all of these things? The point is this, when it becomes such a natural part of who you are you've understood what it means that you have been forgiven. When your natural inclination is to give love and grace and mercy and to provide for people, you have understood what it means that Jesus has given you salvation. See, the opposite, and I'll just read it for you if you don't believe me, the opposite is true. Verse 40, then the king will reply. I tell you that, okay, verse 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, or a stranger, needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, and did not help you? And he will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. You know, what's interesting is, he says, when it becomes such a natural part of who you are to continually give and love, that means you are this faithful servant. God, Jesus has gone from this earth for some time. And we, we discussed last week that it's so that we could bring as many people as possible alongside of us on this journey of faith where we want to give blessing and, G- and Jesus and grace and forgiveness to everyone that we come across. We believe that Jesus wants us to do that. But now that we are here, we are, we are his faithful servants. He says, just as a master leaves and comes back, Jesus left, he is coming back, and he is asking you and me to be a faithful servant. And what it means to be a faithful servant is to not judge anyone based on who they are, where they are, what they have, or what they don't have. He says, if somebody is in need, you provide for them. Period. End of discussion. Because while you were in need, I gave you grace. I forgave you when you didn't deserve it. In essence, he's saying if, if you're just looking for the right people to serve, you have missed the point. You serve everyone regardless of who they are. It comes down to this, this verse in James where it says, Be doers of the word and not just merely hearers of the word not just about reading the Bible, it's about implementing what it says. And Jesus says, if you, you want to know what it takes to be ready, do do the work that I've called you to do. Now, can I just, does that sound like a cop-out? I mean, kind of, some of you I know are like, I don't want to raise my hand because I don't want anybody to judge me. <laughs> but I know some of you are like, young pastor, liberal pastor, not cons- not, not I'm talking politics, I'm talking about theologically liberal pastor. Um, you see, they're watering down the word of God. I've heard that. But it's not true. This is so much harder than getting rid of sin in your life. To love the person who has hurt you, betrayed you, stabbed you in the back, that's harder than keeping the Sabbath holy. And Jesus says, that's what I want you to do. There's there's a, oh man, just last night I was listening to a sermon and it says that the only way to defeat hate or anger is by persistent love. Amen. You know how hard that is? No one wants to do that. I don't want to love everybody. I only want to love a few people. And only if they love me back. I'm, I'm not serious, all right? I'm not serious. I try to love everyone. I do my best that is so much harder. So the answer to the question is, how do I know if I'm ready? have to look around and say, would people describe me as a loving person? Am I truly loving others? Or am I simply just trying to get rid of sin in my life? As a church, we're trying to give you as many opportunities as possible um, to to, to do these things. And so as as the months come by, we're going to be doing more things to help you to, to just be secure in knowing that you have been saved and God has given you all that you need for salvation.